0: We'll begin in Romans chapter 5, so find the book of Romans chapter 5, turn there please. As we begin our study of another great doctrine or truth of scripture, the doctrine of imputation. Before we get started on the actual context of Romans chapter 5 and my first of three points, Remember where we, I've taken you on these great words, because this really describes everything that we've gone through as believers. And I think it helps us have greater love, greater devotion, maybe a greater passion to witness, knowing these various truths. We began with total depravity, that you and I, because of Adam's sin, pl- are plunged deep into sin. Every Sin has contaminated every aspect of our personality. We have a sinful disposition we are born with, It is alienated from God. It is spiritually dead. It is a rebel. It is wicked. It is opposed to everything that is good and godly. And that is our totally depraved state. There is nothing in us that God finds favorable or good. Even our righteousnesses are simply as filthy rags in God's eyes. The book of Titus, which I just finished preaching through, remember how it said this in chapter 3? For we ourselves... We believers, ourselves, were once—this is our old life—foolish. We are foolish. Um, Deceived and tricked. All right? We were disobedient. We were serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That is just who we are as mankind, as human creation, because we rebelled against our Maker. Our second word was grace— That God, out of the depth of his love for us, which is not deserved and it is not earned, he sought to rescue us in this depraved state. That is incredible. We looked at Mephibosheth, how King David was set up as the king. Saul has died, and David has every right to exterminate everybody that is opposing him from Saul's kingdom. But instead, he goes to Saul's kingdom and says, is there anybody that I can demonstrate God's kindness towards? Sure enough, Mephibosheth shows up. He's lame. He is unable to do anything on his own. He's an enemy of the house of David. And David extends grace to him and brings him up to his own table where he is fed for the rest of his life at the king's table. That is you and I, totally depraved, born in sin, separated from God by his Grace and kindness, he scoops down, picks us up, and puts us right at his table. What grace? Two weeks ago, we looked at, or three weeks ago, we looked at regeneration. The whole idea is at the moment that we trust in Jesus, an unbelieving, cold, stony heart is removed, and a fleshly heart that can beat for God is put in there with a new nature. So we're a new creation, never before having existed like that. We're given a new nature that is now disposed to pleasing God and honoring God and loving God. And then God gives us the Holy Spirit. It's all a supernatural transaction. It takes place instantaneous, once forever. Regeneration is beautiful. We are born again, brought in as a child, a son or daughter of the heavenly king. Tonight, imputation. Imputation, by definition, is this. It is placing something on somebody's account. The word imputation is found in the Bible over 40 times, 10 times in the book of Romans chapter four, which we're going to end with tonight. But the idea of imputation to impute something means to take something and place it on somebody's account. So you can think of it like a bookkeeper. You have debits, you have lots of debt, that goes on your account. You pay off your debt, now your debt is cleansed, and maybe you add money into your savings account. That is credited to your account. So up in heaven, we all have a ledger before God who is the great bookkeeper. He has a ledger on everybody on planet Earth. And I'm going to tell you there are three transactions that the Bible talks about of things being placed on or off of our account. To begin with, I want to tell you what is on your record, is on, what is on your account before a holy God. Romans chapter 5 What you get is you get Adam's sinful nature. You get a a sinful nature and all the sinful acts that you commit based on that nature. Romans chapter 5 says this, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, that one man is Adam, sin entered the world. All right, so go back to the Garden of Eden. You have Adam and Eve created in God's image. They're having a glorious relationship, a glorious time in a beautiful garden. Eve is by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Adam is standing with her. She is having a conversation with the devil, a serpent in the garden. Is that alarming? Yes, it's very alarming. God said, do not eat the fruit of this tree because the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam is there, Eve is there, They're resting, playing, communicating by a deadly tree. The serpent deceives Eve. She takes of the fruit. She eats of it. She turns to Adam, who is with her, and he has a piece of fruit in his hand. There was only one command in the garden, and it was, do not eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. That was it. There were no other commands. That was the one. Adam has a piece of fruit, and now he has to decide, is he going to eat it, or is he not? He is not deceived. He knows by eating it, he will disobey God. He will become God's enemy. He will be independent of his maker. He eats the fruit. The moment, listen everybody, the moment he ate that fruit, what was placed on his ledger account before a holy God was sin. The Bible says it this way, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. All right, so death came into mankind because of Adam's sin, because the wages of sin is death. And thus, death spread to all men. You know why you and I die? It is because we commit sinful acts. But it's not just that. It is because when Adam ate the fruit, he, the one man in the garden, he guaranteed that every child that came from his loins, of which we are children of Adam and Eve, we have the same contaminated sin nature. So death and sin spread to his children, 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 grandchildren, all the way down to you and I. He says, verse 13, for until the law, that would be Moses, Moses came 1400 BC, 1450 BC, Adam and Eve, 4,000 BC. So from 4000 B.C. to 1444 B.C., uh, for until the law, sin was in the world, wasn't there? Adam and Eve, all of their children sinned, their grandchildren sinned, their great-grandchildren sinned, Noah sinned, his family sinned. But look at verse 13. Sin is not imputed when there is no law. So there was no law, there was no Ten Commandments for all of those thousands of years. But people still died. Why? Because they died Because they had what Adam had, and he died because of it. So what Adam had simply passed on to everybody's account. So when you were born in the human family, you were given a ledger account saying you were spiritually dead. You were a trespasser of God's commands, even though up until that point, the law had not come. Verse 14, he says it this way. Nevertheless, even though there was no law, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Even though we didn't go to the tree and we didn't eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good evil, we are still guilty of the same sin because we got it by inheritance. We inherited all of that from Adam. All right. So he goes on, um, verse 15, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense, that's Adam's offense, many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Now, from the rest of the chapter, he does two things. He's going to place Adam's transgression and what it did with Jesus on the cross and what he did. So let me tell you quickly what Adam did. Adam committed how many sins? One. As a result of that one sin, on his ledger account, it was a sinful nature, death, trespasses, sin after sin after sin, And all of his children and descendants have done a flood of sins. How many sinful acts have been done since Adam in the garden? Billions upon billions upon billions of wicked sins have been performed and thought since Adam in the garden. He created a flood of sewage of sin. By one act on the cross, Jesus only died once on the cross, he not only paid for every sin that was ever committed, But he takes man and he elevates man to be his children, sons and daughters. So that's pretty incredible. I always say it this way with Romans 5. I have a white shirt on. It's very, very easy for me to get this white shirt soiled. Very easy. I can get it greasy and dirty so fast. But it is impossible for me to take a really soiled shirt and restore it not just to its original color, but to make it even more glorious in nature. And that's what God has done. He's taken a marred, ruined creation, and by his grace, made us his children, sons and daughters of the king. So, the first act of imputation, God places sin and sinful natures on all of our accounts, and the wages of sin, it's death. All of every sin must be taken into account, and every single sin that we have is listed on our ledger. It's not a pretty sight, but it's there. Here's the second act of imputation. Take your Bibles. Go with me. We're going to go to four different verses. Isaiah 53. Go with me to the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53. We get this throughout the Bible, but I'm choosing four specific ones. The first act of putting something on somebody's account, God rightfully puts what we deserve, all of our sin, and trespasses on our account. We are guilty as charged. But here's the second act of imputation. All of our wicked sins and transactions, which are on my ledger and on your ledger, are taken off of our account and placed on Jesus' account. All right? We deserve what's on our account, don't we? He gets what he doesn't deserve, but he takes it anyways. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 4. Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs. That's your second act of imputation. He has borne our heavy burden of grief and sin has been placed on somebody else. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He has literally taken all of our sorrows, griefs, tears, and sins upon himself. That's the second act of imputation. And then it says, verse 6, move all the way down. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's what's on our ledger. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's the definition of sin. And the Lord has laid on him, the sinless substitute, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. So on our account, placed all of our sin. Second act, all of our sin, lifted up and placed on Jesus. Wow. Talk about one of the greatest doctrines of the Bible, imputation all of our sin, taken off our account, put on another. It'd be the same feeling of being extremely in debt, never being able to afford getting out of debt. Um, I always like to say, hey, yeah, we've got something money can't buy, debt, you know? Um, Because money can't buy it, otherwise you wouldn't have it. But it's like having an enormous load of debt and having that entire load lifted off of your account and having somebody else pay it. Take your Bibles, go with me to Leviticus, Back further in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 16. This is the Day of Atonement. We just had this Jewish holiday. It's the only day that God commanded the Jewish people to fast. They could not fast for 24 hours, for in that time period, the high priest would take off his beautiful royal garments, his high priestly garments, and he would put on an average common priestly robe. So he would look like everybody else. You guys remember what I've taught about the Day of Atonement, right? The high priest, everybody would be dressed in white gowns with a blue sash. That's the typical priestly garb. But the high priest, he had an ephod, he had things on his shoulders, he had breastplates, he had all sorts of things on and a nice gold crown on his head. When he showed up, you could pick him out of a crowd of 100,000 like this. Because 999, 999,000, that many people looked the same, but one looked different. On the day of atonement, he took off his priestly garments, laid them aside, put on a normal, everyday, common garment. Looked like every priest that walked, walked around. He went in, here's what he does. Leviticus 16, verse 21. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of a live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. So the high priest on this one day a year would take his hands, put them on a live goat, and symbolically, as he's confessing the sins of the nation, all of those sins are taken off the nation, and they're put on a goat. And the goat bears the burden of all of the sins of the nation. One goat gets killed... That pictures Jesus' death, and then one goat runs off and is brought into the wilderness to stay alive, showing the power of the endless life of Jesus. But here's literally what happened. God the Father put his hands on Jesus on the cross, kind of like the high priest with the live goat. God the Father put his hands on Jesus on the cross, and at that moment, all of the sins of the world were being taken up and put on Jesus. Second act of imputation. Look at another text look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. This is the greatest, simplest verse for understanding this concept. Chapter 5 is 2 Corinthians, verse 21. For he, God the Father made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, which means he had no sin on his ledger, to be sin for us. Again, all of our sin was placed on Jesus. Second act of imputation, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I'm going to skip right away to the third part of imputation. The first part, all of our sin rightfully goes on our ledger account. We're guilty as charged. Second act of imputation, God takes all of our evil, all of our sin, lifts it off of our account, puts it on Jesus, and Jesus pays the whole bill. It is finished. The problem is, what's on our account? Nothing. A zero balance. You cannot go to have heaven on a zero balance. You have to go to heaven with righteousness. Not our righteousness, because our righteousness is a gross list of evil deeds. We need a positive righteousness, a positive balance on our account, It's right here. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21 again. For he, the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The third act of imputation, the very righteousness of Christ, is placed on our account. So we have a positive righteousness that belongs to somebody else, but it's on our account. That's how we get to heaven. Because God has taken our sin away, placed it on another who paid it in full, and by faith in him, we get his righteousness in return. Beautiful. It's all a transaction by a perfect judge up in heaven. I, I said four verses. You do have one more. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at this one more text on this aspect of imputation. 1 Peter chapter 2. Jesus, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He could have called 10,000 angels, a whole legion of angels. Um, A legion involved soldiers, horsemen, the whole works. Jesus could have called a whole whole battalion against uh, the world, but he didn't. So verse 23, 1 Peter 2, 23, who when he was reviled, didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Listen to verse 24. Who himself bore our sins in his own body. How can people how can people not be moved by that? Who himself bore our sins, meaning all of our sins were placed on his account, in his own body, on the tree, he paid for all of it, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. Because we have his righteousness, we should live righteously by whose stripes you were healed. So we have three aspects to imputation. One, we have the sin of Adam, plus all of our own sins that we commit on our account. When Jesus died on the cross, every sin of every man, woman, boy, or girl was lifted up and placed on Jesus. He paid all of it, all of the world's sin. Everybody in the world has a zero balance. Sin is paid in full. The only ones who go to heaven have a positive balance on their account, it's those who place their faith in Jesus. Because the moment you place your faith in Jesus, he gives you righteousness on your account, and then you have the ability to go to heaven. So when people go to hell, it's not because they committed a sin. Every sin is paid for on the cross. The world, it says, Jesus, Christ died for the world. First John chapter 2, Christ died for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. The reason people go to hell is they have rejected the only way to get righteousness, Christ alone, faith in Christ alone. That's what Martin Luther stood up. That's what he stood up for, faith alone in Christ alone by God's grace alone. So let me give you. um, Those are the three aspects. Let me give you. Can I give you two quick illustrations? So I just gave you the. I gave you the meaning. I gave you the three acts of imputation. Now let me show you two examples in the Bible where it actually happened. Philemon. Philemon, go to that little book of Philemon. You know the story. Philemon was a godly man. He was a rich man, and he had a church in his house. He had a slave named Onesimus. And it seems that Onesimus had a problem with his master, and escaped. So this slave escaped and, it appears, stole something from his master, whether it's money, goods, food, I don't know. But he made some type of um, wrong against Philemon. Onesimus travels some 800 miles, ends up in Rome. He meets the Apostle Paul through God's providence. He is born again, and Paul says to Onesimus, you have to go back to your master. Onesimus knows he's stolen from Philemon. He has a debt. He cannot pay the debt. Just like you and I. We have a debt. We cannot pay the debt. Here's what Paul says in the book of Philemon, verse 17. He says Paul writes to Philemon, the, the slave owner, if then you count me as a partner, receive him, receive Onesimus, as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything... Put that on my account. There you go. That is that is imputation. Take Onesimus' debt that he owes. Place it on my account. I will pay it in full. Don't hold it against him anymore. But not that. He, he does say... Um, go back to verse 16. No, verse 12. I am sending him back. I am sending Onesimus back. You, therefore... Receive him, that is, my own heart. Paul is saying, receive Onesimus like you would receive me into your house. Treat Onesimus like you would treat me. And that's kind of the idea of the positive righteousness. When you take Onesimus back, take him back with, like, Paul's type of character and attitude, although Onesimus maybe didn't have that at the time. So that's one good example. Very practical way of saying, taking off somebody's debt, paying it yourself, and then having the other person be presented in your in your um, grace. One more illustration: Romans chapter four. If there's any book of the Bible or any chapter that has the word imputation in it, it's this one ten times. Romans chapter four. It's the word. If you have um, maybe it says reckon, the word reckon is the word imputation. You might have accounted or. The New King James has accounted and imputes, has both of those words. But you'll find it 10 times in this chapter. Abraham is talked about in the first four verses. Abraham believed God, verse 3, and it was accounted, it was placed on his account, righteousness. That's the third aspect of imputation. Abraham obviously had sin, he was a child of Adam and Eve. And God, by his grace, knew he was going to pay Abraham's sin. And then Abraham, by believing, would be accounted righteousness. But look at verse 5. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted. That's the word imputation. Your righteousness is imputed by your faith. His faith is accounted for righteousness. That is how you get God's righteousness. Verse six, here's the example. Just as David also describes the blessedness of a man or of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. So you don't get God's righteousness by works, by faith only. Why is David so happy about righteousness by faith alone and not by works? Here's why. Let me tell you the story and we'll finish the text. David was the king of Israel. God put him in that position to lead his nation to godliness. David, when he should have been in battle, instead was on the top floor of his palace looking over the rest of the old city. Back then it wasn't old. Today it's the old city of of David. He was looking down, and of course he saw Bathsheba. Bathsheba was a young woman who her grandfather was David's most trusted counselor. All right, So David knew the family, Ahithophel, Bathsheba's grandfather, was one of his most closest advisors. Bathsheba's husband was Uriah, who was one of David's 30 mighty men. So if David had a close group of men that he could trust and love, it would be these 30 mighty men. David goes premeditating into Bathsheba, commits adultery with her, and then out of fear, he murders, he has Uriah the Hittite murdered. So all of this is done willfully. It's not done accidentally. He planned it. He planned the adultery. He planned the murder. He's offended Ahithophel. He's offended Bathsheba. He's greatly offended Uriah. He's offended the whole nation because he's the king and the example to be set before the people. And he has offended God. There's not anybody that David has not hurt or offended by his sin. What does the Bible say if you commit a willful, premeditated sin in the Old Testament? Death. There is no sacrifice. You could not offer a sacrifice and have your sin forgiven with an animal sacrifice if it was premeditated. The only thing you can do if it was premeditated sin, murder, adultery, or anything, take you outside of the city limits and throw heavy stones to crush your body. They should have taken David out of the palace, brought him to the edge of Jerusalem, put him down in a pit, and tossed massive stones on him to crush his skull and break his bones. That is what he deserved. That's what was on his account, right? Adultery, murder, all premeditated. But God, but God in his grace, forgave by David's faith apart from works. So can you imagine David is expecting to be killed for his premeditated sin? And God says, David, I'm sparing your life. Not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it, but because I am a God who is gracious and kind. And I will give you, I will take your sin upon me, and I will give you my righteousness by your faith in me. How do you think David felt when he knew he's not going to be stoned to death and he can continue to live? Blessed. He uses that word. Verse seven, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. The idea it's not like blessed are thee whose lawless it's not that it's not a le- it's not a blessed like that it's a blessed like leaping jumping happy glad that you can eat another meal on planet earth glad you can go home to your wife glad you have another day to rule as king it is exhilarating joy that's the word blessed Do you get the word it's like Happiness, many, many, many times over. Blessed is the man, a blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered because in David's age, they were only covered. They weren't taken away. Who took them away? Christ. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Wow. That is truly the happy man when God says, you have sinned and you deserve death, but I will take it upon myself and by faith, Faith in my son, I will give you all of my righteousness and bring you to heaven. That is truly a blessed man. You agree? Two great examples. Paul, he says, charge my account, I'll pay it in full, but then treat Onesimus like he would treat me. David, I'm guilty as charged, premeditated murder and adultery. You can't be any more blatant than that. I deserve death by stoning, but God in his grace, took it upon himself, and did not impute my sin to my record. That's what imputation is all about. It's cleansing a record, another one pays it, and then he gives you his very own righteousness, which is the righteousness of God. Isn't that a rich doctrine, rich truth? We are so blessed. Never a sin mentioned, ever. No judgment, no condemnation. We're not going to go to heaven, and there's not going to be any shame. I think there'll be grief and crying. Why will there be grief and crying in heaven? Loss of rewards. We will say, I wish I would have served more faithfully. I wish I would have loved more greatly. But we will never, ever say, I feel shamed for the sin because Christ bore all of our sin, shame, and guilt, 100% of it. There is nothing left for us to be condemned for. Instead, we have only his righteousness. And then, you know what he says? Live for righteousness' sake. So this week, don't live under the burden of sin and guilt and shame. Live under the fact that you are righteous because of Christ's righteousness. It's a glorious doctrine, glorious truth. All of these help me to love the Lord more. And really, I want people to know these are all basic accounting things we can understand. God is so amazing. Praise the Lord. Father, thank you for this doctrine of imputation follows so nicely with our totally depraved state, with a ledger full of sin and a sin nature. Then to know that Jesus bore in his own body our sin. He took on his own ledger what he doesn't deserve. It wasn't his. He took it that belonged to somebody else. But then on our ledger account, he puts, when we place our faith in him, All of his righteousness on us. We are clothed in garments of righteousness forever. Wow, thank you for the most beautiful transaction that took place when we trusted Jesus. We tend to neglect that. We tend to maybe even forget that we were bought with a great price. Help us, Father, to appreciate our salvation, to live not for our own sake, but for righteousness' sake each and every day. Father, we want to be found this week deep in the word, solid in prayer, fervent in evangelism, building one another up, waiting for the second coming, waiting for the rapture of the church and the things to come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come tonight. Come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. God bless you all this week. Remember, Wednesday is our big night, big kickoff night, and